Speak the charm of me. There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When wizards will rule the world. This is the Arnamancy Podcast. The world is weirder than we know. Join your host, Reverend Eric, in his diverse array of amazing guests in an exploration of tarot, magic, the occult, and the history of Western esotericism. The Arnamancy Podcast exists thanks to the support of generous listeners like you. Please consider supporting this podcast for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash arnamancy. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. This is Reverend Derek, and my guest today is Jack Couch. Uh, Jack's a PhD student in information science at Western University of Ontario. His project is to create a Characteristica Universalis, which uses hieroglyphs to translate information between different languages and domains of knowledge. Which honestly sounds a little a little impossible to me, but I guess we'll get into that and you'll convince me. Um, he also has written esoteric fiction, including the novel Eratology, the story of how the historical figure of Imhotep lies at the origins of the Hermetic tradition. Um, hi, Jack. Welcome to the show. Hi, Eric. It's great to be here. You're not going to say something like long-time listener, first-time guest, or which show is this again? <laughs> <laughs> I just wandered in here. <laughs> I might even be drunk. <laughs> well, you know, maybe it is impossible. Maybe I'm chasing a dream. Well, you know? what? Okay, so I mean, you're not you're not the first person to attempt this. No. Um, what makes you think that you your attempt will be successful? Like, what what do you, do you, have you discovered? Some hidden secret to uh, how? information is encoded that you think will give you a leg up on the on your comp on the previous attempts you know one of my favorite ideas from science fiction was this idea of steam engine time which uh-huh. was that uh something that william gibson and bruce sterling came up with where they talk about how hero of alexandria invented the steam engine but why wasn't there an industrial revolution then there was right. an industrial revolution in the in the English, you know, in the 18th century in England. It doesn't make any sense. The the in the late antiquity, they had all the technology to do it. And mm-hmm. I really think that um, the only thing that makes uh, this idea more applicable now is the transformation in generative AI that we're seeing. I just think that we're at a technological moment where mm-hmm. there's going to need to be some kind of standard uh, that can uh, make mappings between different kinds of information. That's encoded in some of these new uh, models, especially language models uh, that are being developed right now. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that it's going to be necessary for something like that to emerge. And I want to change the way people think about user interfaces. I want people to stop thinking about AI as being uh, personal assistance mm-hmm. and start thinking about AI as being a space that we explore where we sort of discover the meanings that we see inside what these things generate. Um, Hmm. Right now we think of it as like prompt engineering. We type in a prompt and we get something back. I want to create interfaces where people can actually explore that. So I'm using these old 17th century ideas about hieroglyphs and 17th century ideas from the Lullian pansophical tradition to sort of imagine like, well, could we actually transform this into a user interface for now? 
Um, you're right. Ever like for hundreds of years, if not thousands, people have attempted this task. Every single one of them has ended in failure. But one of the things I've noticed is that they tend to be very interesting failures that go mm-hmm. on to do something else. You know, like Frege invented the Begriffsschrift, which was supposed to be, you know, was inspired by the same stream of ideas. And it, it had an impact on philosophy or Bliss invented Bliss symbols last century that has been used to help people with communication difficulties actually, you know, convey their thoughts. So, mm-hmm. you know, you you know, the, the perfect universal language, okay, you know, does that exist? Can that ever exist? Maybe not, but I think that uh, let's give it a shot. I think something's changing right now. All right, so maybe we should maybe we should back up a little bit and talk a little bit more about what the Characteristica Universalis actually is. Um, you there's a, there's so many threads to pull on here, but like we should probably do the um, the uh, the introductory question for listeners out there who are just sort of like, wait, what the hell are we talking about? <laughs> so right. so what uh, what is a Characteristica Universalis, or what will it be when one exists? Well, the term Characteristica Universalis really comes from Leibniz, and he Mm -hmm. came up with this idea of uh, glyphs that represent universal concepts or ideas that you combine on Lullian wheels that should Mm -hmm. be an alphabet of human thought that you would use to create logical propositions and that could translate all of science together in a perfectly unambiguous notation system. Now, that wasn't really just his idea. Because he was influenced by John Wilkins at the Royal Society, who, more than Leibniz, actually did build one of these systems. Um, and Wilkins himself was influenced by John Amos Comenius, who's a very important figure in the history of esotericism, who's you know connected to Andrei and the Rosicrucians, but is largely remembered in the European Union today for his contributions for reforming pedagogy. Because he was a hmm. he was a, a pedagogue, and he had this idea of pansophy of universal education. But even the idea of pansophy doesn't really come from Comenius; it comes from the Lullian tradition that you know we know from, like you know, the works of Francis Yates and Giordano Bruno and all of this. And then Comenius himself was really influenced by Bacon. So there's a whole chain of ideas where this idea of a universal language gradually emerged. Umberto Eco, of course, wrote a book about it called The Search for the Perfect Language, where he traces mm-hmm. this history. And there are other ideas um, that I've found very interesting to play with in an artistic sense about the, the creative misinterpretation of Egyptian hieroglyphs going back to Horopalo, which is this fake encyclopedia of hieroglyphs uh, that was written by an Egyptian priest and then translated into Greek and fake hieroglyphs were added into the real hieroglyphs and all of the explanations are bizarre. And, and this had a big influence on the Renaissance. So mm-hmm. there's, they have these ideas that there could be an alphabet of glyphs where you write expressions in these glyphs, uh, like just picture writing. Oh, sun, tree, fire. Okay, we combine these picture pieces of picture writing with a logical calculus and we should be able to form every single thing that could be thought by humankind. And then because it's in pictures, you can just read it instantly and it'll be instantly translatable into all of the languages of the world. And it'll also instantly translate all the sciences so you can see, oh yeah, that's the chemical uh, symbol for boron because it's a rock next to a burning bush. I mean, you know, it's, it is, there's a, the real problem with this is that actual ideographic languages like Egyptian and Chinese don't function this way. They have right. a, they have a, a speech element as well, an element that's tied to the spoken language that's tied in with the, the symbolic imagistic notation. And that's what was really missing from their, their calculations and how to make this thing. So then do you think then that the Characteristica Universalis wouldn't really, um, 
represent any single spoken language. I mean, I, that would be the goal. I think if you were to, I mean, if you think about like Chinese characters, you know, mm-hmm. you can write in kanji in Japanese as well. You could technically take Chinese characters and start adapting them to write in English, but that would actually be a really large literary task that might even take a few generations because you have to you have to make these associations with the radical components. So mm-hmm. I do actually think that there could be some advantage to having an ideographic writing system like Egyptian or Chinese that would be held in common. But the problem with that is that every language has different a different phonology, and so they would use those same symbols in different ways. Um, I one of the things that I uh, want to do with uh, you know I so I'm creating user interfaces where users spin wheels to sort of explore embedding spaces, uh, latent spaces of information that artificial mm-hmm. intelligences generate. So related documents will move around in a, in a geometric space, and you sort of spin these Lillian wheels around and practice sort of a digital version of the art of memory as, as sort of a form of like play for information retrieval is what it looks mm-hmm. like right now. It's, it's, more just a, it's more just a fun game at the moment, um, but I'm also creating fonts. And the idea would be that those fonts also have sounds associated with them. So you could read a set of symbols um, and read them as a word. So you could read a word like gom or something, and that would have like a logical meaning of, of sets that intersect and that would help you sort through those documents. But in that sense, then you're almost creating a new language every, t- aren't you? Like the spoken part of it would be new. Yeah, the spoken part okay. of it would be new. And, uh, you know, one of the, I mean, the, the, the vision that I have right now is that I don't want to give people a grammar. I want people to create their own grammar um, from that. So the spoken part of it is new, but I, I don't really have that much attachment as to what that means. If if this mm-hmm. works, people would find their own meanings in it, you know? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> it's ambitious. And I would also warn you that, uh, you know, no language stays pure or survives... Uh, a an encounter with humans <laughs> right like you you might come up with with a language but one of i think one of the characteristics of language in general is that they are that languages are fluid and they they change over time and they they shift not only according to you know different societies using them but uh they shift according to how they are used and in order you know i mean we end up with contract you know that's why there that's why we've got a zillion languages yeah and why language continues to evolve um yeah do you think that would have a negative impact on a on a universal Uh, well i mean i think that i think we should make a distinction between a language and a writing system because um the the ways in which languages evolve phonologically are Mm -hmm. uh are highly they're conditioned by many, many different factors and are caused by many things. I mean, there's one theory that the primary driver of phonological shifts are children misunderstanding their parents, which is probably, I've heard that one. That's, that's (laughs) probably my favorite, but there are lots of other explanations and there are lots of other things that are going on diachronically in linguistic Mm -hmm. change over thousands of years. Writing systems also change over time. So Mm -hmm. if you look at like Sumerian cuneiform over 3000 years, it slowly becomes more and more abstract. And so mm-hmm. writing systems also have their own uh, evolution that occurs parallel 
to the evolution of spoken language. This is ultimately a writing system. There is, you, you could use it to create, you know, maybe it, it implies a lexicon, but I'm mm-hmm. not trying to necessarily, and there are going to be a set of uh, images that are supposed to correspond to supposedly semantic universals. There are going to be a set of images that, com- but, you know, so there, I think the bigger danger, I get what you're saying, but the bigger danger uh-huh. I think is, is not necessarily a linguistic danger, but a danger of standardization. What happens when people yeah. create standards mm-hmm. um, and the fact that standards tend to, standards uh, tend to be inadequate, but they also tend to have sort of the opposite problem in that, like right now, everyone is still on uh, like, the Library of Congress classification system, even though everyone knows that it's very problematic and needs to be amended, but it's because it has so much momentum and it's mm-hmm. propagated. The, the amount of cost to modify it is huge. So I think, oh, yeah. I, yeah. I think there are like what you're talking about is real. You can't just freeze something and say, this is it. This is it by fiat. There has to be, there has to be fluidity there. That's why I, I, uh, want to use geometry and use, you know, this is a, to make an actual tactile experience of people mm-hmm. manipulating spaces that supposedly should make it so every time you create an expression, it's entirely new. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, hold on. You were talking a, a minute ago uh, about creating sort of like a base set of the the base set of symbols would have um i don't remember what you called them semantic components semantic semantic universals they supposedly. semantic universals is there a finite set of semantic universals though that's a great question um there probably isn't there might yeah. not even be any such thing as a semantic universal um it, it could be entirely just derived from human experience there was an attempt to make a, a set of semantic universals called natural semantic meta language, um, oh. but m- most of the the universals and the and the linguists who made that did a really good job. I mean, they really looked at every language and they took years to do it. They didn't just sit there and you know come up off the top of our heads. Oh, we think these are the semantic universals. No, these these researchers were very thorough. Um, but the universals they came up with were things like up, down, before, after. You know, right and left. These are the these are the universal concepts, which are probably you know statistically speaking, actually the universal concepts. But they're not very good for uh, representing with pictures. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we've got uh, arrows. <laughs> yeah, we've got yeah, we've got arrows. We've got arrows. Yeah, yeah. Um, but depending on, I mean, depending on where you turn them. And then there's the whole thing with nuclear semiotics as well, where like an arrow might mean one thing to us, but to someone from 2000 years ago, it means a weapon. And maybe to someone from 1000 years from now, it's going to mean a weapon. So, uh, yeah. Um, how, is there a finite set of, uh, semantic universals? Probably not. There might not even Mm -hmm. be any semantic universals. There might not be any at all. But you're going to need to have some sort of set of... Uh, basic semantic structures for the characteristic universalis. So, like, what what are some examples of things that might have? I mean, yeah, I'm I, I'm just curious as to what you know. I I know you provided some examples earlier, like you know, boron being like a rock next to a burning bush or whatever. But like, how would you uh, begin coming across those or building those in a in a real way? Like, have you made any attempts yet? Do you have a 
some yeah. universal characters already? I've made about 15 prototypes. Uh, yeah. They're all pretty uh, inadequate by my standards, but there were two big approaches I took, one of which was to just sort of create one. The first one I made, I just sort of did it in a very creative sense. It was during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I was locked inside and I just sort of created a, a set of categories that I thought uh, would be universal. But then, obviously, this is not very rigorous. I went to this database called uh, Panlex that created uh, sets of universal concepts uh, across about 2,000 of the world's 6,000 languages. And these were really, really good because they were concepts like sun, moon, tree, dirt, you know, uh, fire, mm-hmm. earth, air, fire, and water were in there. Certain color terms were in there that were found across all of those languages. So for certain things, and I liked the, those that list of concepts because it was instantly translatable into a, a very huge uh, swath of the world's languages. There's 6,000 languages, and, and getting 2,000 of them in, in a small translation dictionary is, is a huge feat. And also, they were very concrete. So I think... Um, one of the things that I'm looking for is trying to create images that are as concrete as possible, that are depictions of the thing that is there, so that mm-hmm. there isn't any abstract or metaphorical content going on, because you don't really want anything, any, any, even the slightest level of abstraction, I, I think, is not, is not translatable, um, because you wind up that- all these cultural forms come in. I mean, people are going to have different associations with all of these things anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, so I, yeah, I've created, um, a few interfaces and right now they're for, uh, just sort of exploring and querying different data sets. You spin these wheels and you make combinations and your combination of wheels will give you back an image or will give you back a set of words. Um, and that's, that's what it's for right now is just exploring information. So it's, it's a fun game and, you know, maybe it's, it's like a glass bead game, like Herman Hesse's novel, but it's, it's a fun, yeah, it's fun. It definitely, it makes me think of that, you know, the, uh, it seems like in that game, the, the beads themselves were sort of, uh, almost universal concepts or unit or, uh, semantic chunks some of some sort. Yeah, hmm. I, I think they might have been. I don't really remember very well, but I, I think they mentioned something about uh, some kind of universal hieroglyphic notation system that they used in there. Yeah. I think they're yeah. I think that's part of the game. Okay, well, so <clears throat> you have talked uh, a little bit about um, kind of like the history of uh, hieroglyphs um, because those were such a great mystery for so 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 long, and some. Uh, pretty big, um, you know, names in Western esotericism were like really, really into him. So you had uh, mentioned Tor Apollo already, but um, I think my favorite is uh, Athanasius Kircher, mm-hmm. who really literally just made shit up. Right. Uh, but it's great that he was able to get away with it. I, I'm not really sure I understood his motives, like why he thought that would work. <laughs> but, right. Right. Well, I mean, he was a Jesuit, I think. And so yeah. he had a he had a motivation to show how all the arts and sciences were connected. Um, and I True. don't know much about Kircher, but I do know that that stuff about Horapollo was very current, maybe mm-hmm. more in the 16th century than in the 17th century when he was writing. But it was very everyone was obsessed with this this hieroglyphic notation. But one thing about Kircher that I think a lot of people give him a bad rap is he was actually the first person to correctly translate a hieroglyph. 
he figured out that the glyph for water represents the sound M because of the Coptic word mu. And he only came up with one translation, but that was that is the correct translation of that glyph. And it was I that did not know that. Yeah, this is and that's be, that's because everyone just takes dumps on Kircher as being like a pseudoscientist and all this stuff. But it was actually that data point that uh, Champollion took and inspired him to look at Coptic. And that was how he translated the glyphs. So Kircher ah. was actually the first uh, to do it. Ibn Washia, back like a few centuries earlier um, in the Islamic world, uh, tried to uh, translate them, but he didn't get the he, he got the he got that they were phonological, but he didn't get the letters right. Kircher was the first one to actually actually get it right. So you know, yeah. Well, good job, Athanasius. We will all stop crapping on you now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone gives him too too bad of a rep. <laughs> they do. I mean, you know, maybe maybe they don't. It's hard, but yeah, that's uh, that's yeah. uh. <laughs> yeah, well, um, Jesuits versus Freemasons. It's all a giant, you know. Um, it's that's what it all is. That's what this whole podcast is actually about. It's the underlying battle. <laughs> 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 um, all right, so you've uh, you've compared this a few times to uh, sort of the the Lillian arts, um, and uh, for I guess for those who haven't who aren't familiar with uh, Ramon Lowell and his work, can you uh, talk a little bit about what those uh, look like and why those end up being relevant to the the uh, characteristic universalis? Yeah, sure. Well. There's, I mean, like... I'm making you do it. You're making me do it, yeah. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah. Am I qualified to do this? I don't know. Yeah, this is like... Em- is anybody? Yeah, is anybody? Is this, that's like an endless story that there's, yeah. It is. It's it's massive. So he, like, he created these wheels. Um, he created the Ars Magna. The Ars Magna uh, included uh, a logical set of making combinations between attributes of the names of God, because he had a vision when he was in Mallorca uh, that encouraged him to stop being a troubadour and to go try to reunite Christian, Muslim, and Jewish traditions. And so in the book of the Gentile and the Three Wise Men, Lull talks about basically how when you combine attributes of God, like the greatness of God and the goodness of God, you know, the omnipotence and the omnibenevolence of God, um, you reveal, um, it's sort of a, a kind of a, a theological meditation on the divine, the attributes of the divine that's also meant to facilitate this kind of really utopian and very modern interreligious dialogue. I think that's one of the things that really strikes me when I read Lull is it's like, this is from the 14th century, and yet it's the, it's the kind of vision that you have among like the most progressive people today in terms of interreligious dialogue. Uh, so mm-hmm. that that's the purpose. That's the original purpose of the art. Um, but it always has had Kabbalistic connotations. And then there's this huge pseudo-Lolian alchemical literature that was produced where there were all these alchemical manuscripts written under the name of Lull. So he became associated with alchemy as well. And so esoteric and occult connotations attach themselves to Lull's work. And it's not it's complicated by the fact that he wrote a novel called Blaquerna, which I've never read for the record, but I've read uh, summaries of this novel where in this novel he calls for the creation of a Christian Sufism. 
because he was traveling in the Islamic world a lot, and he was saying the Muslims have this these mystical traditions. Why don't we have this in in Christianity? And I think the 14th century was a time when people were really there were lots of you know Meister Eckhart and many other mystics were around Marguerite Perret. Um, mm-hmm. Roisbrick, all these mystics were, were saying, why, you know, why can't we have a, you know, challenging what Christian mysticism could be. So he was, I think he was a very visionary figure, but the way that the art works is you take terms and you place them on usually a wheel and you place another wheel inside that wheel, usually of the same set of terms and you spin the wheels around and just sort of go through all of the possible combinations of the sets of mm-hmm. terms and meditate on them in your mind. And that's and you can use it. You know, he used it for this very lofty spiritual and religious goal. But people would use it as well for almost any intellectual uh, endeavor or magical endeavor because it does have kabbalistic connotations as well. And it became associated with a tradition of encyclopedism, of trying mm-hmm. to you know record the book of nature to record all of the knowledge that could possibly exist. And even this, when you read this sort of stuff, it sounds very modern because it's the kind of stuff that people at Wikipedia are having really long and nerdy debates on the talk pages about. So, mm-hmm. you know, all of this stuff is 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 still with us today, I think, because it did have an impact on the foundations of the Enlightenment. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what the Lull, you know, had these great religious and spiritual ambitions, um, but the, the tradition that he started was one of making combinations, uh, using logic, to combine sets of terms or ideas in all the possible ways they could be combined. I don't know if I'm doing a, a very good job of, of summarizing that. What do you think? No, I think that's a, I think that's a really good way to put it. I think um, if people have come across it, like there, some some of the descriptions of Lowell's art will have the, what is it, the Vauvels, the little spinny mm-hmm. circles that you can actually play with. But uh, the impression that I've gotten from Lowell is that uh, <clears throat> these... Um, structures, the the rotating wheels were imaginal. They were created mm. in the mind and not necessarily on paper or rocks mm. or whatever parchment. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, and then that that sort of um, Lillian art was uh, adapted into an art of memory technique as well. Mm. Um, and, and I'm not sure if Bruno was the first one that did it, but he definitely uses the Lillian approach to. Uh, creating memory images and combining letters and numbers together in interesting ways. Right. And you're a practitioner of the art of memory, right? I am. Yes. Uh, I, uh, am not, you know, I, I know a lot more techniques than I use, I suppose, but, Hmm. uh, you know, Bruno's stuff gets so complicated and so intense that it's hard to use it all. But, uh, yeah, I, I do use the art of memory and I find it to be very helpful. Right. Yeah. Just, just getting familiar with uh, the creation of images um, for the art of memory uh, improves your memory enormously. You know, even mm. without storing them in specific places, just the image mm. creation itself is pretty useful. Mm. Yeah, I've I've used the art of memory only a couple of times to memorize short speeches in like my childhood home or something. Like that's it. That's all I've ever used it for. And but Bruno's stuff, like you say, is like incredible. It seems very theurgic to me, almost. Yeah. Well, I think the whole concept of memory being um, uh, being uh, part of the soul is uh, you know lends itself to theurgy. So this concept of uh, so when you manipulate the memory, or create memory, or 
work with memory uh, artificially, which the art of memory is supposed to be, um, you know, you're changing the soul. You're using the soul as as storage of, of, mm-hmm. in, a, in a way, mm-hmm. yeah. which is kind of interesting. So then the, the Lillian nature of a characteristic characteristic universalis would allow... I really want to see how one of these works. So you basically have semantic components that would then uh, be able to combine with each other uh, in chains that would somehow convey the meaning of something. Yeah. So you might start with, um, you know, your left, right, up, down uh, semantic universals and combine it with, you know, like, the semantic universal for limb and the semantic universal for finger and be able to make the word left hand or something. Yeah. Something like that. Something like mm-hmm. that. We, I recently worked with a team to create an implementation of, uh, of an interface like this for an image data set. And what uh-huh. we did was we added in a little bit of randomness to okay. the, to the algorithm because it, it was, then otherwise we would get the same we would get the same result every single time we made a combination and mm-hmm. uh you know i i originally had it being maybe a little bit more geometric of a solution than that but uh when you hold on when you say geometric what do you mean well um so the 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 modern modern techniques for making embeddings of information um with uh machine learning models will take um uh, I mean, uh, the best way to explain this, the best way I can probably explain this is with text, uh, because mm-hmm. those are the uh, those are the models that I probably understand the best. Um, but it'll take a text and look at the occurrences of all the words in that text and look at the probability that one word will occur before or after another word. And it mm-hmm. transforms that information into really giant vectors, like long strings of numbers where the words are positioned in a space, in a vector space. Um, and so words that have similar meanings tend to cluster together in this space. And it's hmm. not based on any dictionary definition of those words. It's based on how they're used. So words that have similar occurrences are used are used in similar contexts will be found in a similar space geometrically. And then what you can do with that is you can visualize that information by reducing the number of dimensions. And you can visualize it in two or three dimensions that you lose a lot of the features when you do that. And so with this, one of the things I've been doing is taking that information and sometimes, uh, you know, using dimensionality reduction techniques and sometimes not uh, to... uh, create an interface so you can explore these links, these geometric spaces in information. So another thing that's important, and this was in Leibniz's doctoral thesis, De Arte Combinatoria as well. He talks about the the position of a glyph around the circle as also having an effect on its meaning, is that if you move the same glyph to a different place, it'll, it will have a different meaning. And I, 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 so, you know, you were talking before about, uh, the, the work that I'm doing is one of the dangers of it being too, um, too regimented and too like structurally hierarchical. And and that's not how language works, but the actual problems I'm having is there's too much randomness and too much chaos. And I'm trying to discover the structures. Um, yeah, I'm the, your, the, your, uh, your description of the, 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 um, geometrical approach, I was sort of thinking about how, 
you could uh, you could come up with your semantic units by finding um, by finding dense clusters in there. But your semantic units, like there would be a calculus to it, right? Like you'd have you'd have to have some sort of limit, like the 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 density threshold would have to be the limit. Um, but the problem that you would then come up with is that. There's not really a guarantee that those that those dense clusters will have a meaning that translates cleanly into a language. It might yeah. not be one word. It might be like entire phrases. It might be, yeah. you know. So have have you run into? Have you experimented with that at all and come all, up with all the time? That's the problem and, I'm trying to solve. Yes. And how 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 is it going? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the the first answer is uh, right now it looks like it's impossible, um, but uh, but it also might not be because there's some really interesting technology being invented. Yeah, that's a huge problem. Mm-hmm. And when people do like even just like k-means clustering, you can sort of select how far you want that limit to be. But then you'll uh-huh. go and you'll look at the cluster, and it, there may not be any meaning in it what the algorithm has seen in your cluster. Mm-hmm. It may like it may draw a line around something and, and your intuition would say, oh, that line shouldn't go there. It should go there. And so then you can go and you can fiddle with the parameters or whatever until it does something more like what you want. But it's still, it's still often you're not actually, it, it won't always uh, segment things the way that's actually intuitive. And so one of the biggest problems is that when, the, when these models create these feature spaces, they we don't really know often what the each dimension means because each mm-hmm. dimension usually is picking up on some kind of feature but because of the um in most cases not in all cases but because of the nature of uh the black box nature black box nature of machine learning models we can't really read what the what each dimension means and so yeah. one of the uh things that i'm really looking for is an embedding method that is semantically explicit and this is where the semantic web and ontologies come in, which are all of these um, technologies. Um, I'm, I'm gonna. I'm really about to nerd out here, but these are technologies. Go for it. Go for it. I'm ready. The, the, <laughs> okay, uh, technologies from the the RDF framework and the OWL ontology language, where you use formal logic to organize information in these graph databases. And there are people who are inventing embedding methods right now that use fuzzy logic. To sort of uh, say that you know entities that are described by an ontology of terms, your ontology of terms, which is like a philosophical hierarchy you make, defines this this space. And so the ontology itself it looks very kabbalistic, and it's also defining these mm-hmm. these um, uh, this this space of uh, mathematical information. Um, I find I feel like uh, I feel like that particular approach that 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 uh, the philosophical approach is is a clever one, but then you're going to run into um, uh, like a sociocentric, you know, because philosophies are tied so much to cultures. Won't that get in the way of a characteristica universalis if if a philosophical approach to breaking language down? It's too, you know, I don't know, uh, Eurocentric or or Indo-European centric or something of that nature. Like, isn't that a danger then? It may well do. It may well do. And that's why ultimately, ideally, I would want the terms in my ontology to just be the glyphs. 
Um, but then you need you need a mathematical you need a mathematical formalism that can unite those things. So as I, as I know, it's impossible. The, uh, the, the mathematical approach to language is. Uh, it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a well-loved uh, recurring theme in golden age science fiction. Mm. You know, one of those, one of those things that I don't know that we've ever solved <laughs> right. yeah. along with flying cars. Yeah. Well, I don't, you know, as, as someone who is a writer, I don't really believe that you can mathematize everything out of language, but I do think that mathematics is important and has a dignity in its own right. And that mm -hmm. there needs to be some kind of, uh, uh, clarification, um, between logic and mathematics to be able to create meaningful spaces for the machines. Um, mm -hmm. I, and I, I don't know, there was a, there, there have been attempts to map logic and geometry to each other. Um, and there, there may be higher levels of abstraction in fields of mathematics like uh, homotopy type theory and category theory, which I don't know anything about, and I'm not qualified. Me neither. I'm not, so I don't. <laughs> I'm just putting those words out there. Is that's a place where the solution to the problem that you describe, the problem with the clusters, and where do you draw that boundary, and all of that, and uh -huh. how do you know that it actually has something expressible? And if you did have a set of semantic universals, how would you relate them to all of that data? There, uh, there is. A potential for some kind of mathematical formalism that could uh, determine that emerging mm -hmm. from those uh, from those areas. I you know I don't know anything about that. I'd like to learn something about that, and maybe I will. But uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, but yeah, that's just a challenge that still lies ahead, huh? Uh, maybe. Yeah. Um. <laughs> um yeah. So natural language, um, uh, art of, you know, like, uh, chat GPT sort of stuff, like the natural language, uh, generation out of these large language model things. Um, you know, the fact that that's starting to look more and more like real language, uh, is, seems like it could be promising. Yeah, I'm really, I mean, that was something I actually really wanted to chat with you about because I'm, I'm really, uh, quite uh, against what OpenAI is doing um, on a number of levels. I mean... Oh, yeah? Tell me why. I mean, ChatGPT is able to perform very well, and it's able to generate language that, that looks good. But I think that the, the it way... It doesn't... Yeah. It doesn't what? No, what? <laughs> well, it doesn't... It doesn't really hold up to scrutiny very well, I've found. You know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a writer by profession and I've tried to use chat GPT to help, but, uh, it, it, you, you just have to second guess it constantly. And it doesn't really sound like a person all the time, you know what I mean? So it, it's interesting. It, it's, it's way more like a person than previous, uh, you know, AI chatbots have been, mm -hmm. but, um, yeah. I mean, that's what I think is the problem is I don't think we should be making things that seem like a person. I think we're obsessed with this idea of creating a homunculus. We want to, like, conjure a demon. Yeah. I want my own R. Daniel Oliva. <laughs> <laughs> it's so tempting because you start interacting with these things and it's pretending to be a historical figure and you just get totally seduced by mm -hmm. what it's doing. But I, you know, I... 
I think that you still have people who are employed to label data and it takes a massive amount of scale of people who are actual writers producing the data. It's not directly. It's Mm -hmm. not like when you're typing in, there's a person typing on the other end, but indirectly there are people making all of this data. And so it just, Mm -hmm. that we have this, we want to create something that seems like a person. and, And I just feel like, why? Like if we, if we want to have something that seems like a person, just employ a person, just pay someone. Like, why Why do we want to make all of these people redundant when you still will be paying a, a large labor force, but a, a less less money and for lower quality? Like, I don't, I, I really mm-hmm. feel like the whole model is just is just perverse. Um, I mean, the whole business model and the whole, the, what they're selling us with this. Yeah, I'm I'm in favor of making as many jobs redundant as possible. I feel like that's a place we should have been already heading, you know, with all of we've got all this advanced technology. And what do we do? We just use it to make more work hours. It sucks. We should be we should be working less, letting robots do the work for us. Yeah, well, I hope that it works out that way. I hope that um, that that's what happens. But I, I just worry that there might be workforces of people who still get exploited, but then we just don't see them, and we're like, "Oh, the robots doing everything for us," you know? Ah, uh, right. I mean, but, I mean, that's already happening, by the way. We we already are in that problem. I, yes, yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Well, yes, I I still think that fundamentally, what this technology is is it's not it it, it doesn't have personhood. Mm-hmm. To me, it's more interesting to explore the geometric structures that are emerging behind the data before you actually go and, and train a model uh, for making inferences on it. That is what's more interesting to me. I think that's that's what I would uh, like people to be doing more of because I think it, it's more human-centric and it, it engages your passions more than um, you know simply entering it into – I mean uh, you know, undergraduates now, it's, it's insane – the number of things I have seen them ask chat GPT. I mean, it's absolutely mad. And, you know, this is the mm-hmm. latest moral panic about students not studying or writing essays anymore. But it is it is really concerning because it, it makes them passive. It makes them very passive um, in terms of how they get their information. And that's that that is concerning, you know. Is it more concerning than uh, having like Google available, though? I mean, at least with Google, you can actually see like what kind of document you're looking at and you can see, you can get sort of metadata information. Whereas with ChatGPT, it just gives you a bunch of text and there's no, you have no way of assessing the reliability of a source. It's just gunk. Yeah. Yeah. You have to basically, you have to, yeah, I, I can see that being a really big problem. First of all, because uh, chat GPT will limit the sort of stuff that you're going to be looking at as an answer to your question. Second of all, you have to go double check everything the chat GPT tells you anyhow. But if you have accepted that it might be giving you an answer, you're not going to be looking further. Yeah. I yeah. have, I have yeah. seen undergraduates um, ask chat GPT, chat GPT a question about what was recorded in the lecture notes, which is like, like infer like what was in the lecture slides and I, I've like said to them, why would, why do you think that chat GPT, like you can just go to the folder on your website and go and look at the lecture slides. Chat GPT has not been trained on your lecture slides. 
the lecture slides are right there. Like, why are you, why are you asking it to go, you know? Yeah, but like, does it ever give a good answer? That's the real question. Well, right. Um, yeah, but yeah, there you go. That is, then you get into that like spooky psychic machine. Then you machine. have to be like, yeah. how many dollars am I paying for these credits? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. And it is too expensive for them, of course. But I think it's also, it's like divination. It's like divination. That's another thing. It is. And, you know, I think that's, I think that is in a way kind of dangerous too. Not because it's like, I mean, it kind of makes diviners out of all of us. Um, Mm -hmm. It does. Yeah. I can see that being a thing. Yeah. And that's interesting too, because, you know, diviners, the, the, the crossover between, um, uh, divination and technology has been sort has been kind of slow to develop but there is sort of like stuff happening uh in the actual divination sphere you know like um have you are you familiar with mosaic which is a divination program that uh trey henry and heather can't remember heather's last name uh i can look it up (laughs) Yeah, I think I've heard of that. I yeah, there are a few that I've 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 come across. I mean, and I've come across a lot of people in ML who are like interested in tarot and Kabbalah and, and all of these things. And then there's mm-hmm. there's a whole there's a whole sort of, I mean, especially with those image generators when they started, they were just generating things that looked so psychedelic. Um, I know. I loved it. Yeah. They were so much better then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everyone says that. Everyone says that. Like, wait, no. Why are they photorealistic yeah, now? Bring, bring back the extra fingers and the weird faces <laughs> and the melty Santa Clauses. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, those are the days. Uh, but It's uh, Heather Freeman, Trey Henry and Heather Freeman. They, they made a program called Mosaic mm. that is sort of like a modern day divination thing. Um, but yeah, the the... ChatGPT as weird oracle that might be you know it's funny i was just sort of thinking like but yeah isn't it just sort of randomizing text and blah 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 blah. and then i'm remembering that there were there have been methods of divination that take random bits of text out of homer you know like using random text has long been a part of divination yeah yeah i yeah i think that it is i mean you can connect it legitimately to divination. My only concern is mm-hmm. that, you know, there are real people who make choices about the training data and there are real people who are employed to generate the training data. And that is not in the, it's not in the the narrative that's sold by the industry, but that's the reality of how the way I understand the industry right now, that's the reality of how things are working. Even with zero shot learning, even with all these things that are supposed to make it so that you need less humans in the loop, you still have people making these choices. And I think that like, what's interesting to me about it is, yeah, there's definitely a connection and it is in many ways, like almost exactly the same thing. But the danger is that you still have people's biases sort of entering into these things. And that can, that can obscure things and create second order effects. So if you start mm-hmm. treating chat GPT like an Oracle, which is what it, it encourages you to do, because you also have to mm-hmm. interpret its results. Like you're saying, you have to interpret you the do. Oracle. Yeah. You have to, <laughs> and it, and it is like so big that it just seems to, and it can say really scary stuff. It can say stuff that's yeah. like really, really true. And you're like, Holy, what, how did that happen? But uh, I feel like, the next time I use chat GPT, I should probably huff some volcano gas. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
just to get yourself right up there. Yeah. 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 Um, no, I think that, uh, it is, it is potentially, um, the danger is that there are these second order and third order effects that come from the fact that people are sort of the, the biases that are in the text are entering into things. So yeah, I think it is, there is, it turns, it makes us all into diviners though. And that's another thing that I think is interesting is that like people who come from established esoteric traditions, um, will have a different relationship to all of this stuff than people mm-hmm. who are just sort of, you know, who are just entering it from, from this, uh, this sort of more outsider perspective. But I do, I do think it is, I do think it's dangerous. I think we need to stop thinking of these things as persons, you know? Oh yeah. I think that's very, very important. I, I, and I think, uh, you know, we, we did ourselves a disservice by calling these things artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Right. They are, they are not, they are machine learning models, but but ascribing any sort of intelligence to them is uh, is just going to take us down the wrong path. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, absolutely. It's yeah, it's interesting because they're able to do all of these things that uh, human beings cannot do. They're able mm-hmm. to do things with text that human beings cannot do, and it's very impressive oh, yeah. and very interesting and very provocative at times. But we keep wanting to turn it into. Um, uh, like a, a, a person or a sock puppet or something like that. And I think that's very interesting as well from an esoteric perspective because, you know, so many rituals about ensouling statues or, or creating homunculi or things like this are are in a way trying to do that. So you would think that, you know, I would be like, yeah, let's, great, let's let's ensoul the AI. But I think there's just a, there's a fundamental disconnect in how the technology is functioning. Um, and what yeah, we're asking it to I, do. I would agree. I'm not sure. Yeah. God, that is a weird thought, though. Well, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's something, you know, I know that there's there's going to be regulation that comes down from governments and such that's going to really kind of uh, might put a might put a really big uh, limiter on some of the way that these black box um, machine learning models work. You know, there's they're gonna, there's going to need to be probably like more accountability and more labeling and more sort of like uh, you know attribution of sources and things like that. That's going to be a really really strange change. I'm not sure how uh, how machine learning is going to take to that when it happens. Yeah, well, I wonder like how much financial incentive they have to really mm-hmm. uh, follow what the regulators demand, even if like the GDPR. I, I think that's what you're referring to, like the GDPR. Is that? Um, uh, or- I don't. I'm sure the GDPR. I know that there was some there was some legal stuff about GDPR things, but um, I've heard of, and I haven't been. I've not been following it very closely, so I might just be. This might just be totally mm-hmm. made up by me but um i've heard of uh potential legislation going through like the united United states congress and stuff oh wow that would be i mean if they actually did something that would be great yeah (laughs) it would be i i don't know how far along it is if if it's just people making noise or if people are actually drafting stuff up but i'm sure it'll happen sooner or later yeah well i think they don't really have a financial incentive to leave the um the business model of scale which is just more data not mm-hmm. don't don't waste too much energy on labeling lowest common denominator on labeling and just as much data mm-hmm. as possible and you know if you take away 
even a, a little bit of taking away that business model and you start losing a lot of money. So I imagine even if the regulators it would be great if the regulators would come up with something really, really strong. But I don't, you know, obviously I don't really know anything about how that works, but I imagine that if the regulators uh, put up something that wasn't strong enough, they'd do everything they could to wiggle out of it. Because their business model is based on getting as much information as possible and just pouring it into these things. It's not based on being thorough, mm -hmm. and it's not based on uh, annotating your sources with good metadata. Because if you do take the time to do that, it takes you so long to build something big like ChatGPT it would you'd be a nonprofit and it would take you 40 years it wouldn't be like you know something you could ship in yeah. in 6 months you know um so yeah 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 um okay uh let's uh, let's shift back to more of the uh, characteristic universalis again i one of the things uh, one of the topics that you had emailed me and you you brought this up really briefly was uh, the idea of latent spaces can you expand on that a little bit? What is a uh, latent space? Yeah, well, I'll announce and enunciate latent. Yeah, latent. <laughs> yes, it sounds very arcane, but they're they're really this, the geometric spaces we were talking about, where those clusters form and where the clusters of oh. meaning happen. And so, okay. one of the things about when you actually go and and look underneath at how the models are are making inferences over all this data, it's really these these clusters in these high dimensional geometric spaces where all of the information is, is positioned close to each other, geometrically speaking, uh, that is uh, uh, enabling uh, the inference process to occur. Mm -hmm. And so okay. the idea with this was to say, well, what if we created a user interface where the idea of how we explore this information isn't talking to an oracle or a diamond, like when you're talking to ChatGPT, but is instead playing with a series of glyphs that also have divinatorian theurgic connotations. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, very much so. <laughs> but, but it also, you know, in my view, it puts power back into your hands because you have to be a little bit engaged and you have to get involved in that act of play and of discovery and of looking at like, ooh, if I put the, the beetle next to the sun, what happens? Sort of like Lyra with her alethiometer. I don't know if you ever... Red, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I watched the TV show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So some, a, a play a little bit like that. And then maybe you get some information back. And so you're still mm -hmm. interpreting and you're still sort of reading the tea leaves and you're still sort of doing divination like with chat GPT. But I think it's a bit more ethical because you, you know that's what you're doing. And it's explicit that that's what you're doing rather than it being sold to you as like, this is the all-seeing eye of God. Hmm. So it seems to me that um, if you're exploring the the data in that way, um, it might not even be important for uh, the glyphs to be 100% accurate. You know, we were talking about how those clusters of information, they might not, it might be really, really difficult to uh, reduce those into something that is like human language compatible since it's, you know, machine data that's been clump together using whatever algorithm they're they're clumping stuff with but um but instead having some sort of way of i don't know uh measuring the topology of the cluster and using that to assign a glyph to it that you might have you know those glyphs might not necessarily be 
uh, accurate mm-hmm. to that cluster, but they 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 could still be useful in terms of uh, combining or recombining meaning. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a really that's a really good idea, and that may be uh, the direction that what I'm doing or something like what I'm doing would wind up taking. Um, you can have that idea, and you don't have to tell anybody that it was me. Okay. Well, no, I'll, I'll cite you. I won't be like ChatGPT. I won't just, you know, <laughs> spit out a bunch of, you know, <laughs> rambling dreams. <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> Eric Arneson. <laughs> no, um, I, I, I do think that um, that is that may well be um, the way that something like this would work. Um, mm-hmm. You know. I, I love searching for things and I love exploring things even when they're dead ends. And so I'm mm-hmm. still going to go look for some kind of really, uh, you know, beautiful semantic way to do it, even if that doesn't pan out. Because I figure um, um, we already know how to uh, how to make those kinds of associations when they're arbitrary. Whoa, what if there was some kind of link there? Oh, Probably impossible, mm-hmm. but then I get to have fun uh, discovering that it's completely impossible, um, which is <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is part of the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't be doing this if I wasn't slightly crazy, you know. Um, oh, it, it does not sound like a sane man's task. That's for sure. No, <laughs> I mean one of the things that I just absolutely love about it, though, is that you are totally tackling this thing that that people have been failing at for centuries and centuries and centuries. And you're like, but hold on, we've got new technology. Let's do it again. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, But it, you know, we, we were talking about the glass bead game a little earlier. And one of the things that I love about the glass bead game and sort of the lore that has come out of that is that like in the, in the realm of like game nerds, it's kind of like the Holy grail of, of, of fictional games, you know, because the glass bead game is never really explicitly described in the book. Right. You know, it's sort of talked around um, and certain elements of it are, are, are described, but like the game itself, you don't know what the rules are. You don't know what it looks like. You know, you don't know anything about this, but it is generated like all of these people trying to create glass bead games of their own. Right. Yeah. Um, and some of them, some of them are pretty interesting. I don't know if it's, if it's really common anymore, but I do know that like, you know, 20 years ago, you could search around on the internet and find people's like interpretations. Like, this is what I think the glass bead game would be like. And it was, there was a lot of, there, it was almost like what you're talking about in reverse. Like a lot of these, um, one of the ones that I really liked the most, it didn't even bother with making glyphs or symbols for your ideas you would write the idea in like just a little bubble and on paper and use it almost like a reverse mind map of some sort like a mind map as a game it's kind of crazy no that's that's so much fun i feel like the the novel is better because he never told us what the rules were i mean it would be boring yeah if on page three you know necht goes in and and lays the whole thing would be like no come on you know but i (laughs) but it reminds me of like rosicrucianism like rosicrucianism Uh was a literary phenomenon in the manifestos mm-hmm. and all of that. And now all of these people have gone and started Rosicrucian orders, you know, and they just, they just, they're like, this has to exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it is almost sort of that same thing. So basically what you're doing is like a combination of Rosicrucianism and the glass bead game. Yeah, actually. Yeah. 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 There we go. All yeah, right. Tell it like this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> well, I mean, I love it. I love it. I, it, it regardless of, 
regardless of 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 whether or not you find a a successful characteristic a universalis you are going to come up with a useful tool for exploring like um you know uh semantic connections and and the way that ideas uh cross linguistic barriers and and all that kind of stuff like you're going to come up with something that's useful no matter what even if it doesn't fulfill 100 percent of the requirements that a characteristic a universalis has which is pretty exciting yeah that that's how i feel too like take a shot you know go mm-hmm. for it and fail big and you know and yeah. then see what happens you know well i mean you were mentioning um who was the uh, the 19th century guys uh, uh frega or was it bliss uh bliss bliss yeah you're talking about how bliss's attempt ended up being useful uh as a communication tool for people who have like problems expressing themselves and stuff like yeah you know it, it not finding the characteristic of universalis doesn't mean that you are wasting your effort. You're still going to make something useful. That's what I think. But you know, it's it's all about <laughs> it's all about the search. You have to take some risks. It is, and you know, who can say in the end? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I uh, I know you you sent me um, a few links to some of your uh, uh, user interface experiments. I think I haven't I haven't explored them a whole lot. But now that I have a better idea or a better understanding of what you're working on, I'm kind of excited about seeing some of your early attempts yeah I'll, I'll i'll send some to you again i'd love to hear what you think yeah all right you want me to include links in the show notes sure. for people to go check them out and we'll see people maybe maybe there's a maybe there's some crazy linguist hiding in a cave <laughs> listening to this podcast who listen to this i have this written on my cave wall already i'll send them a picture <laughs> i wouldn't be surprised <laughs> uh, all right well this has been wonderful eric Thank you so much. It has been. Well, that was supposed to be my line. Oh, was it? Oh, dear. Did I yeah, just... It's cool. It's all right. Oh, man. I'm, I'm stealing <laughs> the hosting capacity here. Oops. Yeah. Well, th- this has been great. Um, so uh, I'm going to have a link to your novel, Eratology, in the show notes. People will go check that out. I think after listening to you nerd out, uh, people will be like, they didn't mention Hermeticism at all. I got to go read this novel now and see what's up with that. Yeah. Uh, because you and I... We, you and I met because of Hermeticism. You know, we met right. because of the Hermetic House of Life uh, Discord server, um, and uh, and then uh, yeah, I'll have some links to some of your user experience, your your user interface experiments, and um, whatever else you have for me. I know that uh, you've got some other. Is there like one place where all of your work can be found, where people can just go um, to like? You can follow my Twitter. That's probably the best Ooh. place. I do have a Twitter. That's just yeah. Jack Cash. Yeah, just Jack Cash. Yeah, yeah. that's easy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'll have a link to that too. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much for uh, badgering me until um, I finally was like, okay, fine, let's let's do an interview because this was a fascinating conversation, and I think that it's so exciting that stuff like the Lolian Arts and you know characteristic universalis and hieroglyphs and all this stuff is sort of finding its way into expressions in modern technology. Like, I, I just love that so much. Um, you know, Scott Gaznell, uh has has this sort of theory that uh, Giordano Bruno kind of invented certain data types before computers were ever envisioned, like ways of using memory and ways of storing memory and linked lists and all this sorts of stuff. And I'm kind of like, yeah, that, yeah, he kind of did. Like, it's not in the language of computers, but that's totally what we do with computers. It's this exact same stuff. <laughs> so it's neat seeing these concepts 
recycled and reimagined and reused with new technology and new ways of uh, approaching data. It's very cool. Wow. Thank you for, so much for that. I'm speechless. Yeah. That's brilliant. <laughs> A perfect place to end the episode. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. Take care. This has been another episode of the Arnamancy Podcast. Thank you for joining me. I have been your host, Reverend Eric. You can find Arnamancy online at arnamancy.com, and you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere podcasts are found. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting the Arnamancy Project for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash arnamancy. Vanessa Irena, and I'm really excited to announce my new store, Sword and Scythe, where I'll be offering magical art, materia, and services beneath Mars and Saturn. You can visit the store at swordandscythe.com and be sure to sign up for the email list to receive early access to new releases.